Michael's excited to be here this morning. Awesome. Awesome. I was looking at my watch as I was coming up here, and it's already 10.50, and I have a six-point sermon, and I have a baptism to do as well. Uh, so you guys ready to, like, buckle your seatbelts and just dive through God's Word super fast? Um, it's going to be really cool. Uh, today we're talking about the flood, the deluge, as it would be in the, in the, New King, or in the King James Bible. Uh, turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 7. As you're turning there, uh, I also want to remind you, uh, if you're taking notes, I have a sermon title for you. And the sermon title, if you're taking notes, is Some Pictures for This Faith. This morning we're going to look at a few pictures uh, and some examples and, and really some points that can be drawn from this portion of Scripture that will really strengthen us in our faith. Strengthen us in our faith, not only as Bible-believing Christians, but as in people who follow Jesus with everything we have. So be paying attention this morning. We have a few really just important things that we want to cover. But this is what it says in Genesis chapter 7, verse 1. It says this, Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you seven of every clean animal, male and female, Two of each of the animals that are unclean, male and his female. Also seven of each of the birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of the earth. For after seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth forty days and forty nights. And I will destroy from the face of the earth all the living things that I have made. This is an important verse right here. And Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Let's pray. Dear God, we just thank you so much for your word. God, we thank you that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. God, we thank you that your word reveals to us the motives and the intents of our heart. And God, this morning, as we spend these next few moments briefly looking at your scripture, God, I pray that you would speak to each and every single one of us. God, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would reveal truth to us. And God, that we would be strengthened in our faith, that we would be built up in our most holy faith. As faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, God, as we look at your word, may we be built up, unwavering, unshakable, on the foundation that Jesus Christ is Lord. God, I pray that these would not be my words, but God, that you would speak through me. Anything that would be of me, God, may I not be able to get it out of my mouth, but God, that your perfect word would come through. So God, we just thank you. We praise you. In your son's wonderful and beautiful name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen, amen. I want you to look at your neighbor real quick and just tell them, get ready, because we have a lot of information that we're just going to pound through, and then we're going to have an awesome time of baptisms. It's going to be super cool. So as I said, uh, the title of this morning's message, if you're taking notes, is Some Pictures for This Faith. Our first point that we're going to look at today is really some purposes for the flood. We have this flood, and we're not going to read all of Genesis chapter 7, but you can read all of Genesis chapter 7 in the first part of Genesis chapter 8. And it really breaks down the story of the great flood, the Snowatic flood. Uh, the story goes, this is the Matthew Morris paraphrased version, Noah and his family got in the ark, they got the animals with them, God shuts the door, then it begins to rain for 40 days and for 40 nights, and then for 150 days they're floating around the earth, and then another 150 days it begins to drain, and then after another 40 days Noah sends out uh, the dove, and then after another 7 days, dove doesn't come back, and Noah says, the earth is dry, let's go repopulate. That's chapter 7 and chapter 8 in a nutshell. But what is the purpose 
before this flood. Why would God, after he had just a few chapters ago created all of the universe, created the earth, created all of the animals, the creepy crawly things, that's one of my favorite parts, uh, then then the, the, the trees, creates humanity, and he says, this is good. What would be God's purpose for now saying, I am going to destroy everything that I have made? Well, the very real answer, and you guys know the answer, the answer is sin. And when man fell, when Adam fell, and sin entered the world, so did death. But it wasn't just sin that maybe you could push onto the back burner. Maybe it was sin that you could resist and stand firm in your righteousness. No, sin came in like a rushing wave. And mankind, in an instant, became so sinful that by the time we get to Noah, just here a few generations later, sin runs rampant. There is not a single righteous person on the earth but Noah. And we're not just talking sin like I'm at the corner candy store and I steal a Snickers bar. We're talking murder running rampant, sexual sin running rampant, thieving, all sorts of the worst imaginable sins are taking place. And not only is God a creator God, a loving God, a merciful God, but we serve a God who is just. And there is a consequence for our unjust acts. There is a consequence for evil. And the purpose of the flood was God's destruction of evil. The payment of sin. Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 1 tells us that the people were so lost in their debased ways that God gave them over to the desires of their heart. Sin was running rampant, and God said, enough is enough. I'm actually frustrated that I created these people because they have polluted what I created. So there's destruction. I have a few verses for you. I'm not going to read them, but I think they're going to be up on the board. These are just some verses about God dealing with sin, God dealing with evil, God dealing with the wicked. Psalm chapter 37, verse 38, Proverbs 14, 11, Psalm 94, 23, Psalm 73, 19, Hosea 7, 13, and 1 Timothy 6, chapter 9, or, or chapter 6, verse 9. And you guys can go look at those on your own. Those are just a few. You do a quick little Google search, God destroying the wicked, and it's like verses after verses after verses. And, th- and these are the portions of Scripture that we don't always like to focus on. Because we living in the New Testament age, Jesus has come. He's a God of grace and of mercy and of love. We tend to forget the fact that he's also a God of justice and a God of judgment. And it does us good to remember that. Because Jesus tells the disciples, when it is like the days of Noah, which is what we're talking about right now, God is going to bring destruction again. Now, we're going to look at a verse in Peter just a little bit later on. God promised us he's not going to destroy the earth with water. So we're not going to get globally flooded, amen. But the earth is going to get globally fired. It's going to be fireball, and it's going to be baptized with fire. And so uh, we need to be people who are cognizant of the sin, of the wickedness, even in our own hearts. And we need to be people who turn and repent to the Lord, as we're going to see here in just a little bit. By my schooling, I'm a historian. I'm not a theologian. I didn't get a Bible degree. I have a degree in history. 
I love history, and history is very important. And as a historian, we like to look for patterns. We like to see patterns of evidence. We like to see evidence that pops up here and there, and we begin to piece together a picture. And this portion of Scripture, in all reality, the first 11 chapters of Genesis uh, have really been questioned by scholars, and really the, the global flood, as talked about here in Genesis chapter 7, has been put under the microscope by not only atheists, but Christian scholars as well. Some will come up with the idea that, oh, well, maybe it was a localized flood. Their understanding of the earth was just the Middle East and the region in which they live, so maybe it was a local flood. I want to tell you guys today that when God's word says the whole earth was flooded, the whole earth was flooded. And, 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 and very good Bible-believing Christians will tell you, yes, but it was still just a localized flood. There's no evidence for a global flood. When we look at it through hermeneutics, we look at the people it was being written to, and the people it was being written to were just people from the Middle East, so they understood that it was the whole world was the No. The New Testament writers, Peter tells us that the whole earth was destroyed by water. That means the whole earth was destroyed by water. And as a historian, we would see evidence for this throughout the world. So our second point this morning, the first being a purpose for the flood, the second would be some proofs for the flood. Now this is the part where we need to buckle our seatbelts. I'm going to try and cruise through this nice and quick. But there is an overwhelming amount of evidence that proves that there was a global flood. We don't have time this morning to look at the population growth and, and, and civilizations being started and how peoples of the world began to grow and, and, and how different civilizations began to grow. Come tonight for our verse-by-verse -verse study. We're going to break down all of chapter 7, all of chapter 8. We're going to talk about population growth and people and how we can prove this is real. But also, we have geological evidence. We have paleontology that proves the flood. And we also have ancient records from different civilizations. We're going to go over a few of those this morning if we can. John, I think we have a slide coming up here. The first that we're going to look at is we're going to look at some geological evidence for the flood. This is a picture of the Grand Canyon. I didn't take the picture with the camera. I actually painted that the other day. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. This is a picture of the Grand Canyon. H has anyone been to the Grand Canyon before? Yeah, Grand Canyon is amazing. It's beautiful. It's, it's awe-inspiring. It'll take your breath away. It is a geological wonder. And when you look at the Grand Canyon, this is just one tiny example of the geology that points to a global flood. You see all the different stratification of the rocks, the colors. That's all dirt and rock that had been deposited in, 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 in a naturalistic view over millions and millions of years. But it doesn't line up. It doesn't line up. Because, if I had a laser pointer, I'd do it. But if I come all the way over here, there's some rock strata down at the bottom here. Now, this rock strata down at the bottom, interestingly, dates to about 5,000 B.C. But it also doesn't line up with the region. You see, the Grand Canyon is in Arizona. That rock came from the coast of England. It does not line up. When you date the rock from the coast of England, you want to take a stab at when that rock is dated at? About 5,000 years old. They're from the same rock formation. How does this happen? Well, a rapid draining of a flood 
moving sediment around. This is a catastrophic event that takes place, a global flood, things being picked up, tossed all over the place, all over the world. I don't have time to actually begin to break down how rock strata is formed and all of this, but we have evidence, this is crazy, of trees that are petrified that go through the rock strata, but not trees that had decayed over time, but trees that were rapidly decayed and petrified because of a catastrophic event. And if we were to look at the strata the way an evolutionist or an old earth scientist would look at it, this tree is growing from 68 million years, and then part of the trees in 32 million years, and then in 1 million years, and 175,000 years. It's just a tree. But it goes through all of these, and we base all our fossils off of this timeline. It just doesn't line up. But a global flood depositing sediment rapidly it proves that this is a possibility and that the flood could happen. And we begin to see these patterns of evidence throughout. Another one that I want to cover this morning, and we don't have time to cover all the rocks and everything, we have fossil record as well. Now, this is a really interesting fossil. If you can tell by looking at the picture, this is a fish eating another fish, and it was fossilized in the process of eating that fish, and it still has biological material on it more than just bone. This cannot happen over time. This can't even happen over a few decades. This happens rapidly. When a fish is swimming around and a violent torrent of water catches it up in some mud and it dies as it is eating a fish as the mud begins to settle. How does that happen? Well, in a catastrophic flood event as the waters begin to recede and the sediment begins to move all around. Here's some physical evidence that would prove that there was a global flood. There's some more proof for a flood. One of the proofs that I really like, because being someone who loves history, I like to look at these things. Uh, we have some ancient texts that talk about a global flood. Now, many critics of the Bible, and, and, and for hundreds of years, people have criticized the flood story that the Bible is copying the Epic of Gilgamesh. Anyone ever heard of the Epic of Gilgamesh? Okay, it's a Babylonian story about a king. There's a flood. There's a creation story. And people like to say that Genesis copied from that. The Epic of Gilgamesh is not the only one. The Epic of Gilgamesh is actually the most recent of those stories. The Epic of Gilgamesh was written somewhere around 1150 B.C. That's our earliest copy of the Epic of Gilgamesh. May I let you know that Genesis was written in about 1440 by Moses. So we've got some dates that are off if we're copying from the Epic of Gilgamesh. We have some earlier ones. The Epic of Atrahasis. This is an Akkadian epic that talks about a flood and a man saving people. We have one that's even earlier than that, from 2150 B.C. It's the Urudu Genesis. It's a story of a man, an ark, some animals being saved, earth being reestablished. This is an old Sumerian tale. Now, if we look at the timeline of biblical history, the flood takes place somewhere around 2400 B.C., give or take a few years. The story of the flood begins being passed down from Noah's sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. 
Noah himself begins to pass down the story. And we can see this story in over 270 cultures throughout the world, a story of a global flood, a man who was righteous who saved his family and the animals. In my humble opinion, it would state that the Bible is actually, and the biblical story is where all these stories derive their tale from. Because here's the thing, all of these stories, they claim that it happened somewhere around 2300 B.C. The Bible claims somewhere around 2400 B.C. What I'm getting at here is as a historian, we begin to look at the text, we begin to look at the primary documents, we begin to look at the resources and connect dots, and we see who said what, at what time, when is it coming, and then when we connect those dots, we see the earliest mention of it predates our earliest manuscripts, if that makes sense. And so this would lead a historian to say, okay, we have evidence that this story is the story that's being told amongst all these different epics. I have a lot more information about that. We do not have time this morning to go into that. The last part I want to go into when it comes to proofs for the flood. Uh, we have a guy by the name of Noah. loads his family up on an ark. As we're going to see as we continue in the book of Genesis, Noah's sons begin to repopulate what is Europe, North Africa, and all of Asia. We don't know where Noah went, but there is strong evidence that Noah migrated with a group of people after the Tower of Babel to what is now modern-day China. You may say to me, well, Pastor Matt, I've never seen China in the Bible. Well, it is there if we actually look, but you're going to have to come tonight to actually see that. But there is strong evidence that Noah is the one who goes to China and actually establishes the Chinese culture. When we look and we see the very first emperor of China, and China kept a lot of good records, the first emperor of China is from about 2230 B.C. He establishes a religion of one true God, and he begins to do what is called border sacrifices, where this emperor goes to the farthest reaches of the empire and does a sacrifice on the border of the empire twice a year. Where else do we see a border sacrifice? Well, we see it in Scripture when Adam goes back to the border of the Garden of Eden and offers a sacrifice twice a year. There's this pattern of a religion that has been passed down by someone who must have been in relation with Adam's family who establishes this religion in China. It's not for another thousand years that Chinese begin to add more gods. Their own tradition says that this man who established was a man who had a family, survived the flood, and established civilization in China. The pattern of evidence begins to build up, and if we're going to put this in a court case, it begins to become very clear that the biblical account of the flood could potentially be very true. I have a slide. This is some Chinese script up here. In the Chinese language and in, in, in many of the Eastern Asian languages, they're not Semitic like Hebrew. Uh, they're not uh, our language or Cyrillic like Russian. They use characters when they're writing their language. We have here the character for ship or large boat or vessel. And that character is a breakdown of the smaller character, ship, eight, and people. 
That's a familiar story, a ship with eight people equaling a larger ship. It's a story in Genesis chapter 7. The Chinese character for ark, the word ark, is rectangular boat. If we were to break down and draw a picture of the way God prescribes that the ark should be built, it's a rectangular boat. The very language of one of the most ancient languages on the earth draws the literal picture of the story of Genesis. And historically, the Chinese culture didn't get the Bible until the first century A.D. Yet it has a story that took place some 4,000 years before. It is hard to look at the overwhelming evidence and say that the Bible is not true. It's hard to look at it and say, ah, well, it's just a myth. It's a good story. It's a parable. No, this is a historical event. And you might be sitting here and you're like, all right, Pastor Matt, that was cool. I didn't know I was going back to college. I didn't know I was going back to school. Why are we looking at this this morning? Well, the importance to me is the historical accuracy of it. Because if God's word is not historically accurate, if God's word is just saying things that didn't happen, but it's trying to trick us into believing that it happened, why are we believing anything it says? If God's word is a bunch of false stories to inspire us, it sounds a lot like Disney movies. False stories to inspire us. I believe that God's word is 100% true, and because it's 100% true, it's 100% inspiring. Not only is it 100% inspiring to me, it's 100% inspired by God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says that all Scripture is God-breathed. It's given to us for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for the building up of the believer. Yes, God's Word is paramount. You hear it every single Sunday. God's Word should be at the center of our lives. So true. All right, third point. How are we doing time-wise? All right. Third point is this, some proponents for the flood. So who actually believed the flood was real? The Old Testament patriarchs? Jesus Christ himself, because he affirms Moses writing Genesis and that these are the true words of God. The New Testament writers, Peter, Matthew, the author of Hebrews, it could be Paul, it could be Barnabas, it could be Clement. There's a whole lot of discussion there. Luke. All of these guys, they talk about the flood as a literal event. Not only them, but the early church fathers. Not just some of the early church fathers, but all of the church fathers. Working their way down. The last known church father of antiquity who talks about it being a legitimate thing is St. Augustine of Hippo. One of the most important theologians in the history of Christianity. He makes the top 50 greatest philosophers of all of the world. Augustine said this was a literal event. But it's shortly after Augustine that we begin to see the Bible and biblical stories begin to shift in their understanding. And people begin to look at them as allegorical or, oh, those are just good for life, but they don't actually matter. It wasn't until the 1800s that it began to resurface that, hey, this is actually fact, and we can prove that it's fact. But the earliest, earliest church, 
believe that God's word is 100% true. And it is 100% true for us today. Fourth point, some principles from the flood. What can we learn from Noah's flood? How many of you guys remember going to Sunday school when you were a kid? The flannel grams with the cool stick up the picture of Moses, stick up Abraham, Noah, the ark. It's fun to learn about the flood when you're like seven years old. Because then you get to like build an ark in kids' church and put it in a little bucket full of water. Yeah, I remember those times. But what does Noah's flood actually mean to us as adults in the 21st century? I think it has some really important points for us. And here's some principles. God saves the righteous. When there is righteousness, God brings salvation. God is a God of salvation. And Hebrews tells us that this righteousness is accounted as faith. So I want to encourage us as believers this morning. What's our faith level? Jesus says that they will know us by our fruits. Are we people who are bearing the fruit of faith? Are we people who are bearing the fruit of righteousness? I want to encourage us this morning to walk with God as, as we've been seeing these, these early patriarchs. They walked with God. I want to encourage us this morning. Let's walk with God. Let's be righteous. Let's have that righteousness be attributed to us as faith. And let's live as people who are living under the salvation that comes from God. Amen? That's a really short point. Point number five. Some promises from the flood. There's some really cool promises. God told us that he will never again destroy the earth by water. If you guys remember, and we'll look at it maybe a little bit more tonight and next week, Genesis chapter 8, God gives a covenant to Noah, and it's a reminder, a constant and eternal reminder that God will not destroy the earth by water again. Anyone remember what that covenant is? Yeah, a rainbow. We see them, well, more recently we see them quite often. It's raining a lot. But then the sun comes. Don't we love Oregon? But we see these rainbows. These rainbows are constant reminders that God is not only a God of justice, but a God of salvation. And he saves those who put their faith in him. Not only is it a reminder to us here, but when we look at the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 4, verse 3, it describes the throne of God and sitting above the throne of God is a rainbow. This, this covenant that I will no longer destroy but those who are righteous, they can have everlasting salvation in me. Another promise comes to us in Philippians chapter 1, verse 28. There's a clear sign, leads to destruction. But us, our salvation comes from God. The promise of the flood and what the flood means to us these 4,000 years after the fact, God is a God who saves and he's still in the business of saving today. He saved Noah all those years ago, but he still saves today. And if we just but put our faith in Jesus Christ, Romans tells us that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It makes me wonder about those people who were making fun of Noah while he was building the ark. 
You see, it took him 120 years to build this boat. The narrative, God says, I will not strive with man forever. I can just imagine the merciful God saying, hello, people of the world. Do you not see this man who's been telling you that there's a God? Now he's building a boat and he says there's going to be rain. Here is a marker. Here is a sign. Here is something. Grab a hold of it. I do not want to strive with you. I want to bring you salvation. But then God closes the doors. And the time comes. And the wicked are destroyed and the righteous are saved. You and I today, we are a lot like that ark. We are a lot like Noah. If we stand for righteousness, if we preach truth, we are a beacon to the lost world. Now, does that mean they will look at us and be like, oh, man, there's destruction coming. We should probably follow Jesus. Yeah, in some cases it does. But in some cases, it means we're going to be made fun of. It means we're going to be laughed at. It means we're going to be accused of believing fairy tales. But you know the thing that separated Noah from the people of his day? Not only was he righteous, but he did everything that God had commanded him to. I want that to be me. That I do everything that God commands of me. I would love to stand up here today and tell you, every time God speaks to me, I do what he says. Every time I'm presented with an opportunity to sin, I overcome. Every time, every time, I'm, yeah, always, always, no. I fall short, just like we all fall short. But I want to be someone who God says of me, righteous, faithful, does what I say. Because when we do these things, people begin to take notice. People begin to take notice. Not of us, but of God in us. His greatest commandment to us, we're told in 1 John, His commandment is not burdensome. What was His commandment to us? Love God and love your neighbor. Go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe the things which I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's what God has commanded us to do. Let's be people who do all that God commands. I guarantee that when we do, guaranteed, not only, you guys don't need my guarantee. God guarantees that when we do that, he begins to pour out his spirit and people begin to speak with boldness and people are added to the church daily. You want to get encouraged? You want to get inspired? Go read the first three chapters of Acts. Added, added, added. The church began to multiply. It goes from one plus one equals two to two to two to four. It begins to happen exponentially, and I believe that that can still happen today. I believe that that is still happening today. I believe it happened on Friday night this week. I believe it's going to happen this afternoon when there are over 2,000 people from this community hearing the gospel. God is in the business of saving and God uses his agents of righteousness, you and I, 
and the ark that is the church. Let's be people who profess the goodness and the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Last point. Some prescriptions from the flood. So how should we live in light of the flood? Well, today, you might have noticed this horse trough up here. It is, uh, it's full of water. Uh, we're going to do some baptisms. And Peter, Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, he draws a cool correlation that I'm going to draw right now. Just as the earth was recreated through the flood, there was a dying of wickedness, and there was a new earth raised in goodness, so too is baptism. When we die to the old man and we raise him new with Christ. The earth was saved through water. Peter tells us, so we too are saved today through baptism. Now, baptism is not necessary for salvation. There's only Jesus, John 14, 6. But, Jesus encourages us, and the writers of the New Testament encourage us to be baptized. And every believer should be baptized. Why? Not because... It's some like special, ooh, I got an extra bit of salvation. No, it's a public declaration. It's an outward expression of an inward change. If Jesus has done something in your life, what better way to show the world that you're sold out for Jesus than to be baptized? Dying to the old man, raising anew with Christ. It's an eternal reminder that we were once sinners, we were once dead in our trespasses, but God, who is rich in mercy, with the love with which he has loved us, sent his Son. And anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So this morning, we're going to be doing some baptisms. I know of at least two. So I'm going to invite at this time, is Ella. Ella's back here in the back. Ella and her dad, Dave. I'm going to invite you guys to come on forward. And then Rebecca, is she in here? There she is over there. But I'm going to invite you guys to come forward. Dan, he's going to come. He's going to be my towel bearer. But we're going to baptize this morning. And I'm going to encourage, maybe you've never been baptized before, and you're going to see these baptisms take place this morning. Philip, when he was talking to the Ethiopian eunuch, explains to him the scrolls of Isaiah. The eunuch says, hey, I want to be saved. He gets saved. He says, I want to be baptized. And Philip says, hey, we got some water. What's to stop us from being baptized right now? And they go, they're baptized. Then Philip is translated. He disappears and appears in another city. Um, that'd be cool if that happened to me right now. But it's not. <laughs> but we have water. If you've never been baptized and you want to follow Jesus' example in baptism, today would be a great opportunity to get baptized. We have towels. It's a linoleum floor. It's not going to ruin anything. So I'm going to invite us this morning, if you want to be baptized, today would be the day. Bella, I'm going to invite you to come up here first. Let's give it up for Ella, you guys. You want to come around to this end right here? All right, we're going to help you get in there. Is it cold? Oh, that's good news. That's good news. All right, Ella, well, I'm going to have you stand right now. I'm going to ask you these questions, and I'm going to have you sit, and then your dad and I are going to baptize you. Does that sound good? Ella, do you love Jesus? Yes. Do you plan to live the rest of your days to let the world know how much you love Jesus? Yes. 
Super cool. Do you have anything you want to say to everyone out here? All right. All right. Well, I'm going to hand the microphone off to this microphone stand over here. All right. I'm going to have you sit down. I'm going to have you face right over here. All right. I'm going to have you put your profession of your faith that Jesus Christ is Lord, we now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All the way now. Super cool. All right, Rebecca, make your way out this way. Jesus? You guys holding your microphone? Yes. Yes. You've been serving the Lord for a little while, and you want to let everyone know. Amen. Amen. And you seek to live the rest of your days to let the world know how much you love Jesus? Awesome. Awesome. Anything you want to say to everyone? All righty. All righty. I'm going to have you sit down. It's not freezing cold, but it might be a little cold. Rebecca, on the uh, confession of your faith that Jesus Christ is Lord, we now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All the way now. Amen. Amen. Is there anyone else who'd like to be baptized this morning? We got some water. Do I see a hand in the back? All right, come on up here. Is that Joe? you once and uh at the congregation here so some may know you but you want to let them all know your name uh hi my name is joseph hernandez and uh, i'm from california and i've been in oregon for the past three months so super cool amen well joe you love jesus yes sir you plan to live the rest of your life to let everyone know how much you love the lord yes sir super cool super cool i'm gonna let you take that shirt and let's climb on in yeah, you can take those socks off if you want. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to have you sit down. On the profession of your faith that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Praise God. Praise God. Let's keep it going. Okay.
anyone else. We got water. It's not too cold, I promise. Oh, thank you, buddy. All right, well, hey, with that, I'm going to invite you guys all to stand this morning. And we're going to pray. And we're going to thank the Lord for all that he's done. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Dear God, we just thank you so much. God, we thank you for your salvation. We thank you that you love us and you care for us so much that you provided a way for us to have eternal life with you. God, we thank you for the truth of your word and that your word is always true. It means what it says and it says what it means. God, we thank you for the flood and the example of your saving power through water. And God, we thank you for baptism and this public declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord and we are going to live for him for the rest of our days. God, for those who were baptized, I pray that you would continually bless them, pour out your blessing on them. God, I pray that it would encourage and inspire all of us here today to be more about our Father's business, to be more the people who do as the Lord commanded, that we would go out and that we would share the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ with those around us. God, I pray that you would go with us this week. God, bring us back next week, ready to hear and be filled up with your word. And God, we just want to lift up one more time Pastor Dave uh, as he and the interns, God, have gone and are going to be sharing the gospel at this, uh, at this memorial service. God, we pray that you would just right now be preparing the hearts to hear. So God, we thank you and we praise you in your son's wonderful and beautiful name, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. Have a great week.